6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. I just filed bankruptcy. Isn't that great? You know, earthquake just wiped out our home of our dreams. Let's count it all joy. That sound a little flaky? What's he saying? What he is saying is it'll develop here that when God's people are called upon to pass through trials, it is, first of all, not evidence of God's displeasure. One of the first traps we fall into when things really go against us is to assume that somehow, boy, does my father have it in for me. That's a hard feeling to avoid, but it's a lie. And by the way, the book of Job is the thing in mind. Remember Job? He had one thing after, I mean, just the whole concatenation of events. You know, his wealth, his family, his health. I mean, step by step, he is stripped, right? And many people, most books you pick up about comments, commentaries, the book of Job, usually say, well, Job is the book that, why do the innocent suffer? Well, if that's what the book of Job is all about, that never gets answered. That's not what the book of Job is all about. Exactly. Job has all these problems. Then he's got these three friends that quote scripture, man, they rip them to shreds. With friends like Job, you don't need enemies. Until the fourth guy comes along, and some people think that's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, but that's speculative. But the point is, what the real issue of the book of Job is, see, you and I as readers of the book of Job are treated to a conversation Job didn't know about. Right up front. This deal, this, this contest, if I can call it that, between God and Satan. And uh, Job didn't know that was going on. didn't matter. Why? Because the issue was, did he trust God? The real issue, could Job somehow maintain the divine viewpoint? Could Job trust God enough to know that somehow there's purpose in all this and that's God's business? So it's not so much why the innocent suffer as much as is maintaining the divine viewpoint. And that's part of what James is starting to develop here. The word temptations here, by the way, doesn't refer being tempted to sin, but rather the testing of faith. It's an unfortunate translation in that sense. And then James goes on to explain why we count this for joy. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Remember that you're suffering. If you're in Jesus Christ, nothing can happen to you. I'm not saying if you're, if you're not in Christ... All bets are off. That's a whole different theology. I won't even get into that. I won't speculate about that one way or the other. But if you're in Christ, everything that happens to you is Father filtered. It's done by His will. Permissive will or directive will. I won't get into all that right here. So part of the issue is, I'm going to suggest in other ways, my line is this. Every day, God finds another way to ask you, do you trust me? And there's lots of ways He asks that question, but your whole life's walk is your response to his asking that question in different ways. Do you really trust him? 
All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You might want to put a tab on Romans 8.28 and check it every day, make, it still, make sure it's still there. Every day God asks you, do you trust me? What's the purpose of your suffering? It's to prepare you for ministry. If you've had a particularly unique setback, one of the possibilities, not necessarily for sure, but one of the possibilities is maybe God is having you weather that storm so that you can minister to people who are going through that storm. A cancer threat, a medical setback, a bankruptcy, whatever, fill in the blank. It might be to prepare you to to minister to somebody that's going to need your ministry in that area. Now, if you profess the Lord Jesus Christ, you can count on that profession being tested. He promises you that. There's lots of verses, you know, when you're persecuted, men revile you and so forth. In our case, we were teaching the Bible. We were Christians for more than 20 years, 30 years, whatever. Leading Bible studies with some regularity. The Lord plunged us into a, a miserable, miserable bankruptcy. Not just where we lost everything, but I had put in most of the money in the company, but it was a public company and there were other public investors. And uh, it went into bankruptcy. Chapters, not just chapter 11, chapter 7. I personally had guaranteed, in addition to my own investments, guaranteed loans and things, and that wiped us out. And that was, I was suicidal. And it was, uh, it stripped uh, everything I'd worked for for years, our dream home, lost everything. And you say, and, and I can remember driving from Big Bear. I'd go down several times a week, down the hour, hour and a half, down drive down the mountainside. I had a $5 million policy on my life. Still effective, strangely enough. Every oncoming car was an opportunity. And I hope I never forget that feeling. Because I died. Not physically, but as far as I'm all my dreams, all my ambitions, all the things I'd built, spent 30 years as an executive building, crumbled. Why? To show me something better. And um, praise God. The, the, the one thing that kept me from doing something stupid was he's either in control or he isn't. I hope I never forget those days. Because... Um, that was essential preparation. When I had a very large balance sheet, I taught the Bible, but I was arrogant, comfortable, six, seven, eight figures behind your net worth. Uh, you don't really sweat a lot of things. You can't relate to a lot of other issues. It was in the way. So God uh, did some wonderful things. Nan and I have uh, never been poorer, never been happier, never worked harder. But uh, all that was preparation. It's interesting, as we look back on those days, we often do, <laughs> The bankruptcy wasn't the only thing. We then moved to rent to another house, and it was the epicenter of an earthquake that took care of whatever else was left. <laughs> but that wasn't the part that hurt the worst. The finances weren't the, the toughest part, because when you're in the deal field, you can always bounce back if that's what you want to do. It was the for being forsaken by all our Christian friends. That was an interesting experience. There were a few exceptions, but very few. Anyway, uh, that's God's preparation according to James, verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Praise God for that. I do recommend you don't pray for patience. <laughs> because the way you get patience is to put you through tribulation, see? Not the great tribulation, don't misunderstand. You and I are naturally, if you're a type A type or a driver, you're naturally fretful and impatient. And we always want to rebel against God's way, God's timing, and, and uh, we somehow can't get it through Him, how quick things need to be, be done, and we are always in a hurry. 
But we need to learn to be submissive to whatever God uh, uh, permits, because that glorifies Him. Who, if we order our things according to His His will, David said his soul had quieted itself as a weaned child. See, when you wean a child, you start shifting him to solid food. He's petful; he doesn't accept it at first, but gradually accepts it. There's a weaning process that goes on, and David relates that in Psalm 131, which is a psalm of only three verses. If you want to memorize a psalm, that's a good candidate. There's only three verses. Right? So, and uh, there's this weaning idea that's here. And, of course, the goal is maturity and the development of a strong Christian character. The whole idea is that becoming mature and whole in, in, before God, we're no longer craving for, God, for what God sees fit to withhold. We know that if God's withholding it, then he has withholding it for a good reason. And this is the real victory. But for this kind of victory, it requires something. It requires supernatural wisdom. How many have supernatural wisdom here? Can I see your hands? Good for you. Okay. <laughs> for those of you that didn't have your hand up. Because <laughs> verse 5 tells you how to get it. If any of you lack wisdom, and the kindly wisdom he's talking about is a supernatural kind, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. We all lack wisdom. Knowing our need is the first step in receiving what we need. The first step at filling a hole is to recognize there's a hole. Right? And so, but he gives any, creates some conditions here in verse 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a, like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. See, if we make a formal request of God without the implicit confidence in his readiness to answer, we dishonor him. If you go before the throne of grace asking for something, without the complete confidence that he has a readiness to respond. You're dishonoring him. Verse 7, For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. See, to ask in faith requires us to know that it's in accordance with his will. And then James goes on, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If if you're ever in the mood for a non-biblical example of that, read Hamlet. A classic play by Shakespeare. But what's the real theme of Hamlet? Setting aside the elegant dialogue and all the other things. Is he couldn't make up his mind. And boy, did that end up into being a mess. What a mess. Shakespeare in his own way raises that issue there. The man of God, in any case, is not given to change. Proverbs 24, 21 suggests that. Continuously veering from one course to another, constantly changing your mind is a demonstration that you are not under divine control. If you're under divine control, you are following a program. God is not the author of confusion. It's interesting how many times you see some Christians say, gee, the Lord had us buy a van. Oh, really? That's interesting. A few weeks later, the Lord had us sell our van. Oh, really? Changed his mind a lot. I mean, you'll see. I mean, there's, and, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, pick on, I'm just picking a rhetorical example, but God's program is directed. He knows what he's doing. Paul wrote to the Galatians in 5.8. He says, this persuadableness be persuadableness. Persuadableness. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Frank Peretti. It's frightening to have an author expert in the audience. Persuadableness. It's not translated that, but it should be because that's the Greek from uh, Persimony. But uh, this persuasibleness cometh not of him that calleth you. And uh, changeableness is evidence of an unsubdued will. And perhaps an inflated ego. 
this again gets, this gets in my mind, part of this is the sanctity of the commitment. One of the most disturbing things in a Christian context is to have a meeting and agree to something, and you make an agreement. Great, great, great. So you go out and start writing checks and making commitments. And then you run into your confrere a little later in the week. Well, I've been praying about it. And the Lord has led me to withdraw from this deal. Oh, really? (laughs) You know, there's there's, moving on. Verse 9. The brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. The meek will guide in judgment. The meek will teach his way. You know what the greatest thing to rejoice in? Is you and I are in the hands of him who makes no mistakes. Once you really, really buy that, boy, does that remove a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, a lot of double-mindedness, if you will. But then James goes on, But the rich, in that he is made low because of the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. And this led me to Psalm 39, 5. You might want to turn with me to Psalm 39, 5 and 6. Because this is uh, part of this perspective building aspect of chapter 1 of James. Psalm 39, 5 says, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Now, you wives knew that all along. I understand that. But I do think this is Mr. and Mrs. Man, but we'll go ahead. Verse 6. Can, now, by the way, you notice there's a word at the end of verse 5? What does it say? Selah. Now, some of you probably been taught that's a musical term. And I should defer to my musical expert down here. But uh, that is not what I understand it is. The Selah means to pause or lift up. And it is a thought connector. It is a thought link. It's sometimes synthetic, adding a developmental insight. Sometimes it's antithetic, highlighting a contrast. It occurs 74 times in the Old Testament, 71 times in the Psalms, and three times in Habakkuk 3. And you'll notice the following verse. See, the Selah connects it with something. It means stop. It's a thought pause, not a musical pause. Verse 39.6 says, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches, knoweth, knowing not who shall gather them. For the sun is no longer risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. At this point, you can, might want in your notes put Psalm 90 verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. This life that we live through is a handbreadth, Psalm 39 says. A wisp, a breeze. A, a friend of mine pointed out to me that you don't grow old, you wake up one day and discover you are. You know, It slips by. I can remember what I used to do uh, years ago. I often used to ask a group, how many... How many Weekends do you have left? Now, if, I, if you say, gee, I'm, you know, let's, let's just pick a number. Let's assume you're 50. Say three score and 10, the scripture says. So your life expectancy is nominally 70. I won't quarrel with actuarial tables here. So you've got roughly 20 years. Well, if I say 20 years, that's an absolute, or if some of you, it's 30 years or whatever it is. 
That's an abstraction. Let me use, let me use uh, someone in his 40s as a better example. You have, what, nominally, theoretically, 30 years left. You could be hit by a car tomorrow, of course, whatever. You could also live to 100. But the point is, actuarially, statistically, you should live till 70. So you got 30 years. 30 years is abstract. Do some arithmetic. you got 1,500 weekends. <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that sort of rattles when you shake it. I mean, that's, you know what I'm saying? I was traveling on Wall Street with a very prominent Jewish financier, and I was working him over. There's a, Bernie, um, you got what? You got maybe a thousand weekends left. What? Well, do your own arithmetic. You know, you're roughly 50. You got you live to 70 theoretically, statistically. So you got uh, 20 years. Multiply by 50 to make the arithmetic simple. You got a thousand weekends, give or take. I saw him many years, and seven federal prosecutions later. <laughs> Literally. Um, and he still remembered that. He says, Chuck, what is it, 900 now? <laughs> Whatever, you know. I said, who's counting? <laughs> well, let's get through verse 12, then we'll have major part of the book. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. That is not eternal life. It may sound like it. Sounds like, feels like, uh uh-uh, not quite. It's the martyr's crown. You find it in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 to the church at Smyrna. The Lord says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days, and be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Not the gift of eternal life. That's a free gift of God. You can't earn that. This is something else. Eternal life cannot be forfeited, or it isn't eternal. John 10, verse 25 to 29, you can go on from that. The question I have, whatever this is, it's a crown of life, it's a label. There are five crowns, by the way. In fact, let me just, let's just go through them quickly. And yeah, The second one is a crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, For what is our hope or our joy, our crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? So the crown of rejoicing comes to those that rejoice at His coming. Okay? Third one is a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which He, the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Crown of righteousness. Another one is the crown of glory. First Peter five four. When the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And then five, the incorruptible crown. First Corinthians nine, twenty four through twenty seven. Know ye not, Paul talking, know ye not that they which run a race run all, but only one receives the prize. So run that ye may obtain. Now he's not saying that there's only one prize, but he's saying they run with the seriousness of winning. Are you running with the seriousness of winning? He continues, Every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. The little laurel wreath that lasted a few days at the victor's booth of whatever. They weren't bronze, gold, or silver. They were perishable. They do it for corruptible crown, but we and incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. 
But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, Paul talking, when I preach to others, that I myself should be a castaway. What is he talking about? This is Paul. Held three jobs. Worked day and night preaching and leading and planning churches. He was a type A if you ever saw one. I thought he's under grace. Why don't you just kick back and, you know, go with the flow? I don't know that Paul ever went with the flow. <laughs> I'm always amused by Acts 15. We opened that earlier. the Council of Jerusalem. And you always see it presented like they approved his doctrine, right? Well, that's great. But if they hadn't, it wouldn't have slowed him down. He wasn't about to change what he was doing. He was on his way. You know what I mean? If you know anything about Paul. Can we lose our crowns? Gee, we're saved. You know, Lord has saved us. Hey, praise God for that. Can we lose our crown? Revelation chapter 3 verse 11. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast that thou hast, that no man take thy crown. What's he talking about? Can you lose your salvation? I don't believe so. What can you lose? Your rewards. <gasps> There's that word. We don't hear that in Christian preaching. And yet it's all through the scripture. The whole point is to run the race for the Lord. To win a prize. Well, I don't preach on rewards because I think our congregation does, does what they do because they love the Lord. That's great. But Paul didn't. I mean, he loved the Lord. He ran the race because he ran the, loved the Lord. But he didn't do it casually. He did it with an intensity. In fact, I'll even use the word desperation. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. By the way, there are five classic crowns. We went through those, but I don't believe there's five. I believe there's more. These just happen to be named. Philippians 4 1 says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and my crown. In other words, Paul spoke of his churches he planted as his crown. Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all, you and I have an appointment, saved or not. You, you, well, if you're saved, you have an appointment before the Bema seat. This isn't the great white throne judgment. This isn't where you know, the, the loser dragged off to eternal perdition. No, no, no. This is the Bema seat. But some of us may show up stark naked. We must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You have an appointment. You have a final exam as Christians before the Lord, at which time you're going to be measured. If you've accomplished zip, no problem, you're saved, but as by fire, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And this whole idea of profit or loss, you can win or you can lose, is foreign to our general perspective of the Christian walk. And Jesus spoke more about this than he did about eschatology or the last time, uh, second coming, the last uh, days and all of that. And Revelation closes, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. You and I are saved by the Lord's work. Praise God. But don't stop there. Why? To bear fruit. How? By our walk. By running out and soul winning? Yes, but that's not all. By our walk. Is it honest? Is it free of hypocrisy? 
Do we mean what we say and say what we mean? Are we examples to the secular world that are positive, even in secular terms? Where are the heroes for our children? Where are the role models? Well, anyway, this is the warm-up on the epistle by Yaakov to the 12 tribes that we'll pick up next Tuesday. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we come before your throne this evening asking your forgiveness. Forgive us, Father, for our sins of presumption, our sins of arrogance, our sins of complacency. We who have received so much from you, you have gone to such extremes to provide for our salvation and our redemption. Oh, Father, forgive us for not being more responsive to the whole counsel of God. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you especially for the epistle of Yaakov that we've looked at tonight. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you will reawaken us to your calling, a calling of stewardship, a calling to be witnesses, not to witness, but to be witnesses in our walk, in our talk, in our lives, that they might glorify you, that our lives might magnify your name, not by our wisdom, but by your spirit, Father. Not by power nor by might, but by your spirit, Father. We pray that you would reignite in each of us a hunger for your word, draw us more deeply into your word. And through our resolve, Father, and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, Father, let your word manifest itself moment by moment, day by day in our walk, that we indeed might be called by your name, and that we indeed might reflect your heart and magnify your name. As we commit ourselves this night into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.